lost their children. As Adelpha Pumphrey sat at her desk with her face in her hands, she thought of her son and his lifeless body lying somewhere in the city at that moment, being inspected by strangers. She swore revenge on whoever killed him. She cursed his father for abandoning the child. She cried for her baby. And she knew she would survive. Somehow, she would survive. Adelpha went to court to watch the arraignment. The police told her the punk who killed her son was scheduled to make his first appearance, a quick and routine matter in which he would plead not guilty and ask for a lawyer. She was in the back row with her brother on one side and a neighbor on the other, her eyes leaking tears into a damp handkerchief. She wanted to see the boy. She also wanted to ask him why, but she knew she would never get the chance. They herded the criminals through like cattle at an auction. All were black, all wore orange coveralls and handcuffs. All were young. Such waste. In addition to his handcuffs, Tequila was adorned with wrist and ankle chains, since his crime was especially violent, though he looked fairly harmless when he was shuffled into the courtroom with the next wave of offenders. He was seated in a row of chairs, and Adelpha stared at the skinny boy in the oversized coveralls and wondered how and why his path had crossed that of her boy's. The two were about the same age, late teens or early twenties. The cops were saying it looked like a random killing. No drugs involved. Tequila Watson, a bailiff announced. He was helped to his feet by another bailiff. He stutter-stepped forward, chains rattling. Mr. Watson, you're charged with murder, the judge announced loudly. How old are you? Twenty, Tequila said, looking down. The murder charge had echoed through the courtroom and brought a temporary stillness. The other criminals in orange looked on with admiration. The lawyers and cops were curious. Can you afford a lawyer? No. Didn't think so, the judge mumbled and glanced at the defense table on one side of the courtroom. The fertile fields of the D.C. Superior Court Criminal Division, felony branch, were worked on a daily basis by the Office of the Public Defender, the safety net for all indigent defendants. Seventy percent of the docket was handled by court-appointed counsel, and at any time there were usually half a dozen PDs milling around in cheap suits and battered loafers with files sticking out of their briefcases. At that precise moment, however, only one PD was present, the Honorable Clay Carter II, who had stopped by to check on two much lesser felonies, and now found himself all alone and wanting to bolt from the courtroom. He glanced to his right and to his left and realized that his honor was looking at him. Mr. Carter, the judge said. It was not an order but an invitation to step forward to do what every PD was expected to do. Defend the indigent, regardless of the case. Mr. Carter swallowed hard, refused to flinch, and walked to the bench as if he just might demand a jury trial right there and then. He took the file from the judge, quickly skimmed its rather thin contents while ignoring the pleading look of Tequila Watson, then said, We'll enter a plea of not guilty, Your Honor. Thank you, Mr. Carter. And we'll show you his counsel of record? For now, yes. Mr. Carter was already plotting excuses to unload this case on someone else at OPD. Very well, thank you, the judge said, already reaching for the next file. Lawyer and client huddled at the defense table for a few minutes. Carter took as much information as Tequila was willing to give, which was very little. He promised to stop by the jail the next day for a longer interview. As they whispered... 
The table was suddenly crowded with young lawyers from the PD's office, colleagues of Carter's who seemed to materialize from nowhere. Was this a setup? Carter asked himself. Had they disappeared knowing a murder defendant was in the room? In the past five years, he'd pulled such stunts himself. Ducking the nasty ones was an art form at OPD. He grabbed his briefcase and hurried away, down the center aisle, past rows of worried relatives, past Adelpha Pumphrey and her little support group. If he had ever been attracted to a career in OPD, he could not now remember why. In one week, the fifth anniversary of his employment there would come and go, without celebration and hopefully without anyone knowing it. Clay Carter was burned out at the age of 31, stuck in an office he was ashamed to show his friends, looking for an exit with no place to go, and now saddled with a senseless murder case that was growing heavier by the minute. There were two others in the elevator he stepped into. One was a court clerk of some variety, with her arms full of files. The other was a fortyish gentleman dressed in designer black, jeans, T-shirt, jacket, alligator boots. He held a newspaper and appeared to be reading it through small glasses perched on the tip of his rather long and elegant nose. In fact, he was studying Clay, who was oblivious. Why would someone pay any attention to anyone else on this elevator in this building? If Clay Carter had been alert instead of brooding, he would have noticed that the gentleman was too well-dressed to be a defendant, but too casual to be a lawyer. He carried nothing but a newspaper, which was somewhat odd because the H. Carl Moultrie Courthouse was not known as a place for reading. He did not appear to be a judge, a clerk, a victim, or a defendant, but Clay never noticed him. In a city of 76,000 lawyers, many of them clustered in megafirms within rifle shot of the U.S. Capitol, the office of the public defender was far down in the minor leagues, low A. Some OPD lawyers were zealously committed to defending the poor and oppressed, and for them the job was not a stepping stone to another career. Other PDs told themselves that the job was transitory, just the nitty-gritty training they needed to get launched into more promising careers. Learn the ropes the hard way. Get your hands dirty, see and do things no big firm associate would ever get near, and someday some firm with real vision will reward the effort. OPD had 80 lawyers, all working in two cramped and suffocating floors of the District of Columbia Public Services Building, a pale, square, concrete structure known as the Cube, on Mass Avenue near Thomas Circle. There were about 40 low-paid secretaries and three dozen paralegals scattered through the maze of cubbyhole offices. The director was a woman named Glenda who spent most of her time locked in her office because she felt safe in there. The beginning salary for an OPD lawyer was $36,000. Raises were minuscule and slow in coming. The most senior lawyer, a frazzled old man of 43, earned $57,600 and had been threatening to quit for 19 years. Clay Carter had not entered law school with the plan of a career or even a brief stint defending indigent criminals. No way. Back when Clay was in college and then law school at Georgetown, his father had a firm in D.C. Clay had worked there part-time for years and had his own office. The dreams had been boundless back then, father and son litigating together as the money poured in. But the firm collapsed during Clay's last year of law school, and his father left town. That was another story. Clay became a public defender because there were no other last-second jobs to grab. 
It took him three years to jockey and connive his way into getting his own office, not one shared with another lawyer or paralegal. About the size of a modest suburban utility closet, it had no windows and a desk that consumed half the floor space. His office in his father's old firm had been four times larger with views of the Washington Monument, and though he tried to forget those views, he couldn't erase them from his memory. He tossed the Tequila Watson file on his very clean and very neat desk and took off his jacket. His Georgetown Law School diploma hung in a handsome frame in the center of a wall. For the first two years at OPD, he had refused to display the diploma for fear that the other lawyers would wonder why someone from Georgetown was working for minimum wages. For the experience, he told himself, I'm here for the experience. The money would come later, when he was a battle-hardened litigator at a very young age. There were six pink phone message slips on his desk, five related to business, one from Rebecca, his longtime girlfriend. He called her first. I'm very busy, she informed him after the required initial pleasantries. You called me, Clay said. Yes, I can only talk a minute or so. Rebecca worked as an assistant to a low-ranking congressman who was the chairman of some useless subcommittee, but because he was the chairman, he had an additional office which he was required to staff with people like Rebecca, who was in a frenzy all day preparing for the next round of hearings that no one would attend. Her father had pulled strings to get her the job. I'm kind of swamped, too, Clay said. Just picked up another murder case. He managed to add a measure of pride to this, as if he were honored to be the attorney for Tequila Watson. It was a game they played. Who was the busiest? Who was the most important? Who worked the hardest? Who had the most pressure? Tomorrow is my mother's birthday, she said, pausing slightly as if Clay was supposed to know this. He did not. He cared not. He didn't like her mother. They've invited us to dinner at the club. A bad day just got worse. The only response he could possibly give...